0: What's eating the parishioners by Man and Lysette. It didn't take us long to know something was wrong when a door appeared behind the altar as Father O'Neill was giving his evening sermon. At first I didn't see it, because I was texting my boyfriend, but when I lost my cell signal I glanced up, only to realize everyone was looking at the front of the church. That might not seem like such an odd thing in and of itself, but I mean everyone was looking. No old grannies were thumbing through their Bibles, no mothers were tending to their fussy children, and no distracted teens were staring at their phones. At least, not anymore. We all had our eyes locked on the gold-pleated door that appeared seemingly out of the blue. As a wave of shocked gasps rose and crashed against the priest standing behind his pulpit, the door slowly creaked open. It was dark inside but for a single oval window off in the distance, I could barely make out if I tilted my head down and squinted hard enough. A hollow room where no room should have been. Father O'Neill turned his back to us and looked at the seemingly empty chambers as he whispered the rest of his sermon as though he couldn't pause it. Maybe he was saying a prayer. It was hard to hear over the chatter in the pews. As he took a few tentative steps toward the door, the building dimmed. One by one, starting from the very back of the church, the stained glass windows on either side of the nave abandoned their glow, not with the slow crawl of a setting sun, but with the swift motions of curtains being drawn. We were left bathing in candlelight, in a very weak and distant glow coming from the back of the mysterious room. The church was abuzz with parishioners. Asking what was happening, others saying it was a miracle and some hissing about it being the devil's work. My best friend Megan, sitting to my left, reached for my hand and squeezed it tightly. I squeezed back. The fear didn't truly seep its way in until someone tried to leave. We all turned our heads to look at him as he pushed and pulled the double doors repeatedly with no success. What the hell is going on here? Who locked the doors? He shouted. Father O'Neill returned to his pulpit, leaning close to the microphone, and spoke over the sounds of Mr. Morrison assaulting the door like a battering ram. Do not be afraid. When God closes a door, he motioned for the entrance and then waved his hand to the new room, he opens a window. A little on the nose. I never thought that saying was meant to be taken so literally. Still, it was enough to calm us down. In our church, Father O'Neill was the ultimate figure of authority, and if he wasn't worried, then neither should we. Mr. Morrison returned to his seat as we all turned our attention to the altar, waiting for an explanation even though I'd seen the same genuine look of disbelief in Father O'Neill's eyes as I'd seen in everyone else's when he noticed the gold door. I wanted to believe he had something to do with it. That it was all part of the plan. He cleared his throat and spoke again. This is a test of faith. Do you trust the Lord to lead you to safety? He's showing us the way. Who will be the first to walk the righteous path? Mr. Parker stood up. I will. The priest smiled and welcomed him with open arms. Jonathan Parker, you agree to lead the way through God's window? Mr. Parker nodded and chuckled lightly. The game's about to start. I really need to get home, he joked. If that's the exit, then I'm all for it. We all laughed, even Father O'Neill. He put a hand on Mr. Parker's back and escorted him to the door. Even from the distance and in the dim lighting, I could see a bead of sweat rolling down the side of the priest's face. I could read a hint of worry in his body language. Mr. Parker knocked on the golden doorframe, smiled, waved, and walked through the threshold looking every bit as confident as the day he'd sold my parents their new truck. The door suddenly slammed shut behind him. It was quiet for a moment, before Mr. Parker shouted, No! Get me out! Get me out! We could hear him thrashing against the door wildly. It rattled but didn't give way. No! 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 His words devolved into a guttural scream that hung in the air as though suspended in time. I didn't think it was possible to scream for that long without stopping to take a breath. I felt my body seizing with terror. What was happening to Mr. Parker? There was a loud roar like that of a tiger before the screams finally stopped. The church door swung open painfully slow as we waited to see what had happened. Mr. Parker was gone. That's when the panic started. That's when everyone went running for the exit, myself included. The doors were locked. We knew that already, but we kept trying to force them open. After all, what could two simple wooden doors do against the strength of a fleeing mob? As it turns out, they could stay as stubbornly sturdy as a brick wall. I gave up quickly and backed away, finding Megan again in the crowd. I tried to shake the fear out of my bones as I pulled her aside. Let's call for help. You got a phone? I asked. She nodded and pulled it out, her face twisted into a frown. No service. Me either. Everyone, everyone, please calm down, said Father O'Neill. This time it took a bit more than a few words from Father O'Neill to quell the crowd. It took the church itself. The church that suddenly and without explanation began to tremble As though from an earthquake, a roar emerged in the back of the mysterious room. A roar that I could have sworn sounded like something speaking. More. Everyone stopped screaming, stopped trying to run away, stopped everything. We were paralyzed with fear, but Father O'Neill wasn't going to let the opportunity to preach pass him by. God is angry with us, he said as he held the pulpit in a vice-like grip. Mr. Parker was not a righteous man. We're being punished for allowing filth into our midst. This, he motioned to the room, is our chance to purge away the unrighteous and the unworthy. I'd seen in movies where people turn on one another. I never thought it could happen in real life, especially not this quickly. But sure enough, as soon as Father O'Neill spoke, we were all too eager to throw one another to the wolves. Camille Antonio was the first one to speak. She'd been dealing with the threat of a divorce for half a year now. We all knew it was coming. We'd all seen her husband dining with his office assistant around town. Her voice was bitter, full of venom. I caught my so-called husband in our marriage bed with another woman last week. If God is angry to anyone here, it'd be with him." That was enough to entice the mob. Mr. Antonio was dragged to the altar. Father O'Neill looked at him disappointedly. Is this true? Mr. Antonio huffed. <laughs> I'm sorry, son. May God have mercy on your soul. Father O'Neil pushed Mr. Antonio into the room. The door snapped shut violently before he even had a chance to stagger back. The screams were... terrible. I hid behind a pew, hands over my ears, trembling as he let out blood-curdling streaks or primal terror. Megan wrapped an arm around my shoulder and sobbed. It's over now. She whispered. I could hear the golden doors slowly open again. I didn't have to look to know Mr. Antonio was gone, devoured by whatever beast was hiding inside. The ground shook violently. This time, dust came raining down from the vaulted ceiling. More, And there's the home-wrecking bitch right for the picking said Camille. I could hear their footsteps as Mr. Antonio's assistant tried to run away. I heard her scream as they brought her to the altar. I think Father O'Neill spoke to her, maybe even offered her words of comfort before I heard the door slamming again. I looked up only to see Camille watching with delight as the assistant screamed in sheer terror. The smug grin on her face was hardly righteous. And so it went. One after the other, anyone who'd ever been wronged by another parishioner called them out. Megan and I hid, just praying it would end, but each time someone disappeared through the door, the thing in the room demanded another sacrifice. I'd lost count of how many people had been fed to it and who was complaining about what when suddenly I felt a tog on my arm. Whore, he hissed. She cried and shook her head. I didn't even know what happened or who accused her of what. She was forced to let go of me. When I stood up and tried to grab her, someone pulled me away. Whore! Slut! Whore! They shouted as they pulled her toward the altar. She was tossed in front of Father O'Neill, who shook his head disapprovingly. You're charged of having sexual intercourse outside of the bonds of marriage. How do you plead? When had this happened? When had it turned into a mockery of court? No, 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 please, please just let me go, begged Megan as she choked back tears. She looked desperate. I was desperate to help her. I, I wanted to do something, to say something to save her, but there was nothing I could do or say to quell the angry mob. No one was listening to me or to her. They were ready to throw her into the belly of the beast. Father O'Neill tisked and motioned for her captor to stand her up. I'm sorry. But you've been found, Gil. He was interrupted by Megan screaming. She had an abortion. Her trembling arm was outstretched toward me. My heart sunk. Last semester, she had me drive her to the clinic. She continued. That was supposed to be our little secret. I told her in confidence. I made her promise she'd never tell a soul. I guess when your life is at stake, you stop caring about keeping your friends' dirty little secrets. The mob parted like the Red Sea, forming a clear path to me. Someone grabbed me by the hair and pulled me down the aisle of Watchers. I felt naked and ashamed, but mostly terrified. They'd begun to call me a whore, and it was just a matter of time before they locked me in the room to be eaten like the others. I remember as they pulled me toward the altar, looking up at the vaulted ceiling. I remember thinking how the many arches made it look like a rib cage. That was my last thought before they tossed me in front of Father O'Neill, the man who'd baptized me, the man I looked up to for guidance, the man who was now sentencing me to death in front of the watchful eyes of his parishioners. I looked to the pews as he pushed me into the room. If I had any hopes that Megan would show remorse and at least mouth I'm sorry to me, then I'd be disappointed because her head was downcast and stayed that way as the door shut in my face. I slammed my arms against it, but I knew there was no point in fighting. If Mr. Parker hadn't been able to get free, how could a scrawny little thing like me manage it? Still, I screamed, cried, begged, and prayed for the door to open. Then I felt a breath of air against the back of my neck. The monster, whatever it was, was about to eat me. I just knew it. I closed my eyes and turned slowly, trembling with the combined fear of every frightening moment I'd experienced in my life. All the times I saw a shadow down the hall or heard a noise under my bed. Every stomach-dropping moment, I narrowly avoided getting run over by a car. All those moments flooded back to me into a single flush of terror. Then as I opened my eyes, I saw it. Not a monster, but the single distant source of light that had been coming from the room. The window. It was beautiful, an oval shape with all the colors of the rainbow and some I'd never seen before and couldn't even describe. At first I thought it was a stained glass window, a stunning one at that. It was split into a million on intricate little pieces like a kaleidoscope. On either side of the colorful circular shape at the center of the oval were slivers of more shades of white than in a paint section of a hardware store. I felt entranced and strangely at peace as I basked in the beautiful warm glow it emitted. But then the colorful, circular shape inside the oval moved. I realized I was wrong. It wasn't a window. It was an eye. A giant eye scrutinizing me from high above, leering at me as though burrowing into my very soul and judging every action I'd taken in my life. With a loud rumble, the eye closed. The ground began to shake. I became aware of my own screams, which hadn't stopped since I'd entered the room, even as I was entranced by the eye. I could feel the walls pushing toward me. The room was getting smaller. I screamed until my throat ached, and then I screamed some more. I screamed until it was impossible to scream. Until the cement walls constricted my chest so much that my lungs couldn't expand even by a millimeter. A mix of dust and chunks of gravel fell into my mouth, leaving me with the texture of grainy sand on my tongue. The walls rubbed against my exposed skin, scraping it raw. It was so painful, sharp, stinging, relentless pain and pressure. So much pressure. And then suddenly... Suddenly... The pressure was gone. I felt a hand pulling me from the rubble. I coughed out dust and rubbed my stinging eyes. A firefighter carried me to the side of the road where I saw Mr. Parker, Mr. Antonio, his assistant, and a few others I recognized from the church. They were all covered in dust and cuts. I didn't understand what was going on. It took a moment for me to look back and see the church laying in pieces. They said the structure wasn't built to handle the magnitude of the earthquake we'd had that evening. They said the church collapsed, burying almost every soul in it aside from mine and the others I joined at the side of the road that night. No one else, dead or alive, was ever found. Not Camille. Not Megan. Not Father O'Neill. If you're thinking I'm about to tell you what I experienced was some sort of hallucination, some kind of life-or-death trick of the mind, I assure you that's not the case. That night I spoke to Mr. Parker and a few of the others as we watched rescue workers digging through the wreck. They all remember the gold door, the dark room, and the eyes staring at them in judgment. It was real. You know the sad thing about this? I can't stop crying. I can't stop waking up at night in a cold sweat. Not because I keep thinking about everyone that died. Not because I keep reliving the trauma of that night. Not because I'll never have the chance to forgive Megan, but because there's one thing I might never know for sure. Was I saved? was I too impure to join the others in the kingdom of heaven? Was I pushed out of that church to be reborn, or was I its excrement? I think I'll only know for sure the day I die. Aren't you a sweetheart? By Maren Lysette and Marcus Demanda. It's my fault. I want that clear from the top. When I tell you that I was lonely, that I needed a friend, I know that doesn't excuse anything. When I tell you this all started when I was 16 years old, it's just background information. When I explain to you that I was brought up by a single mom and that my dad had been in prison since I was five, I'm not calling out for your tears. These are just things that's necessary for you to know. If you don't, none of this will make sense. I need to make sense, I need to keep a clear head, but I'm scared, no, I'm, I'm fucking terrified. It's just me in the wide open world now, and him, Trevor Walker, the friend that I had needed so badly. My dad sent me a photograph with the only letter I ever received from him while he was in prison. In it, they were standing together, smiling, regular jailhouse buddies. That is, until another prisoner shoved pieces of a broken cafeteria tray into my father's femoral artery and neck. Then Trevor became my friend, and he kept being my friend even after I didn't want him anymore, even after I stopped writing to him. But it seems I grew a brain just a little too late. I took a selfie, printed it off at the library at school, and wrote a letter of my own. This is what I said. December 23rd, 2012. Dear Mr. Walker, My English teacher says the art of letter writing is dead. I want to say she'd be happy with me for doing this, for proving her wrong, but I don't think she'd approve. Neither would Mom, but I don't care. My name is Mercy Evans. That's me in the picture. You knew my dad. Did he ever tell you about me? Mom wouldn't let me visit him. I didn't even know he was in jail until I was ten. I might have never found out if Dad hadn't finally written to me. Lucky thing, I was the one who got the mail that day. I can't say I miss him. I hardly remember him. But it's right around Christmas when I miss having a dad. Someone to drive home, the trees strapped to the roof of the car. Someone to call me his little girl and threaten my boyfriend's. I had a boyfriend, which I don't. But I'm all over the place now. I'm sure you must get lonely there, on the inside. (laughs) Is that really what they call it? I know a thing or two about you. I know you've always said you were innocent of those terrible things everyone says you did. My dad must have believed you, even if no one else does. I'm ready to believe you, too. It's hard to make friends when no one understands who you really are, which is something I can totally relate to. Everyone at Marshall is, like, uh, a whole different planet from me. Knowing my luck, you probably won't write back. I just figured, you know, what the hell. Show my mom and Mr. Madsen a thing or two. If you wrote back, maybe the art of letter writing is still alive, if only in us. Sincerely, your old friend's little girl, Mercy. I made a copy of that letter by hand and kept it. I copied them all, every single letter I ever wrote to him. I've always been more than a little OCD. I told myself that first time that if Mr. Walker should write back, if he referenced anything I had written to him, I'd want to be able to look back on it. I stole a stamp from my mother's purse. Over the years, this was the least of the things I'd stolen from her. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, though just as I was doing it and could not help but feel the inevitable self-loathing that burst across my face like a soft hand that had been dunked in a liquid glint. OCD, bipolar, black clothes and pink hair and too much eyeliner and eyeshadow and way too much death metal. Not enough sun, not enough talking with normal people. Except for the shrink, and I still think that she never gave a shit. This was me at 16. This was the girl Trevor Walker answered. And this is what he said. December 31st, 2012. Dear Mercy, Aren't you a sweetheart? It's not often I get mail and your letter arrived just before the new year. It's almost as though you wanted me to know this is a new beginning for us. Is that creepy? Sorry, it's not meant to be. Call me sentimental, but I get lonely this time of year. My family disowned me ages ago. So having someone to talk to makes me very happy. So you're Evan's daughter, huh? Well, I'll be. Your dad talked about you all the time. Said you were the sweetest little thing. Every week I'd catch him writing to you. From the sound of it, you never got his letters, huh? Your mom was to throw them out. I'm really sorry you never got them. There's nothing worse than hoping to hear from a loved one and getting nothing. I know that from experience. I know it ain't much, but I'm here for you. I'm sure your pops would have wanted you to have someone to talk to. You have no idea how much it warms my heart to know you believe I'm innocent. I know we don't know each other much yet, but when the entire world looks at you like a monster, it feels real good to know there's still kind-hearted people out there like you who believe in me. Thanks for the photo. I'll hang it on my wall. Man, you look so much like your father. Had his eyes, for sure. I'm sorry about what happened to him. If you ever need to talk about anything, I'm here for you, okay? Your friend, Trevor Walker. P.S. Please forgive my awful handwriting. I'm afraid it's been a while since I've taken pen to paper. I'm a little rusty. And that was how it all started. is isn't enough, right? Just a fatherless teenage girl trying to connect with, as far as I knew, the only friend that my father ever had, at least while he was in jail. My dad had talked about getting to know wonderful people like Trevor Walker in his letter, and I told myself that this Mr. Walker must be a good man if my father kept his confidence. When I read about Trevor in some old text-only newspaper stories archived on the internet, I noticed how he'd always maintained that he wasn't guilty of anything. I convinced myself that you couldn't judge a person by what other people said he did. My own memories of Dad didn't include things like armed robbery and pistol-whipping a convenience store clerk. What little I remembered was him holding me, high over his head and laughing, or just looking at me with wide, adoring blue eyes. Not like Mother. By the time I was 16, she'd pretty much given up on me and was just waiting out time so she could kick me out of the apartment. If she was here right now, reading this, I'm sure she'd back me up. She was sick of me, and I was done with her. So, the man that claimed he did not kill those women, well, he was a victim too. That's how I saw it. He was the fourth person ruined by whoever had committed those terrible crimes. I was so glad he'd answered me, I wrote him back right away. January 3rd, 2013. Dear Mr. Walker, Happy New Year. I hope that it's okay to say that, considering... Well, you know. Don't worry about your handwriting. I've seen worse. I noticed you put your full name at the bottom of your letter, but I'm still saying Mr., unless you give me permission to do so otherwise. Intent. Your letter was right on time. I'd just blown my chemistry midterm, and Mom took that as her opportunity to confiscate my phone and my iPad and yell at me all afternoon. Sometimes I feel like there's no one left for me in the entire world that I'm shut away in this box with just enough of a window to see everyone else has a life. It's like you timed your letter to rescue me or something. <laughs> Such drama, I know. Sorry, I can't help it. I'm so pissed at my mom right now. I wish I could call her out on keeping dad's letters from me. I think I'll play sick tomorrow and try to find them. If she didn't throw them away. They're mine. That's all there is to it. I'm trying to work out how the dad I remember could have done things he was locked up for. I just can't make it stick, even though mom tells me all the time how guilty he was. I wonder what was going on that he thought he needed that money so badly. of course, she won't tell me anything about that. Kids at school bring up my dad all the time. Counselors and teachers pry into my personal shit every other day, even though I'm already seeing a therapist. One who checks her watch every ten minutes and labels me a self-fulfilling prophecy. Nice, huh? People. God. I'm sorry for being so mad in this letter. I don't want to scare you off. I'm not always like this. I wish I could meet you in person. Maybe when I'm 18. Please don't be freaked out by that. It's just good to have a friend. Mercy. So, yeah. I really wrote that. Don't worry, though. I won't bother you with every single letter I ever wrote to him. We'll keep it to the essentials beyond this point. I can't do this all night. Time is a factor for me now. Still, the second letter I ever got from Trevor Walker is noteworthy. The thing is... No, fuck it. I'll let him speak for himself. January 15th. 2013. Dear Mercy, Aren't you a sweetheart to write me again? When I saw the mail clerk stop in my cell, I nearly jumped for joy. I don't have much in ways of entertainment here. I'll take anything to take my thoughts off the cement walls of my tiny prison cell. I guess in that way we're both pretty similar, aren't we? I'm sure of it now. I'm sure fate brought us together. We're both trapped, both sequestered from the outside world. But just like I have those letters to remind me that I'm not alone, I hope you know that you're not alone either. You have me. Sorry about your mom. Some people have sticks so far up their asses, I swear. You deserve better than her bullshit. If I was her, I'd dote on you day and night. Don't you listen to a word she says about your pops either. You got that? He was a good man, a real good man. Always told me he wanted a better life for you. Buy you nice things, move into a big city. If he hadn't passed, I'm sure he would have gotten out of here someday and followed through on those dreams of his. Shit, I don't doubt it for a second. Now, don't worry about scaring me off, okay? I'm touched you're sharing all this with me. I just wish there was more I could do, you know? But I'll always be here to listen. Or rather, to read. But if you come visit me, and I would really love that I haven't had a visitor in years I'll get to actually listen to your voice Wouldn't that be great? Mercy, we're friends You and I You don't have to call me Mr. or Walker You can go ahead and call me Trevor Here's hoping you've got a great year ahead of you Your friend Trevor And so began Two years Of me referring to this man as Trevor and that's in spite of the vague, creeping unease I felt the way he used words like joy and fate. Worse still, when my common sense tried to reassert itself, was his promise that he would have doted on me. I didn't invite at all of that, of course. Sure I did. I, I know that now. Hell, I knew it then. I remember how foolish I'd felt having all but promised to visit him after my 18th birthday. I remember the calendar advancing toward that date like floodwater under a door. Slow but inexorable, and knowing that I would have to keep that promise or somehow back out of it. Nearing the end of my senior year, we had corresponded 31 times, and it wasn't so weird most of the time. Our letters became conversational and familiar, I trusted him with small secrets. For me, Trevor was a source of positive attention, an uncritical adult who told me so many things I really did want to hear, things I needed to hear. About my problems, my life, my dead and half-forgotten dad. Speaking to him through the mail was safe, and I adopted mail gathering as one of my daily chores. Mom didn't seem to mind. Why would she? It wasn't like dad was going to send me another letter. Incidentally, I never did find the old letters dad had supposedly sent. I was sure that mom must have gotten rid of them, but there wasn't any point in asking. She would deny they had ever existed, and I'd never know if she was lying or not. Anyway, letter writing always provided that perfect cushion of space. I realized I wanted that cushion. I began to suspect somehow that I needed it. But by the week before my 18th birthday, Trevor had reminded me of this so-called promise I had allegedly made in all three of his most recent letters. And in the last one, he announced that I was officially on his approved visitor list. Staring at that letter, I knew I could not put it off any longer. Decision time, I thought. Do you really want to go see this man in person, Mercy? Thinking clearly for the first time about anything as it related to Trevor Walker, I really did do my best to fix the problem. May 29th, 2015. Hi, Trevor. Hope everything's cool with you. I'm sitting by this creek bank in the woods outside of New Glaswick's Strip Mall using my English binder as a sort of portable desktop as I try to write this. I'm crying and my hands are shaking, so now I guess it'll be you who might complain about the whole handwriting issue. Dad took me here once, just before it all went to hell. There's crawfish in the water, but other than that, I'm all alone. It's a good place to come when you want to be all alone. I had another fight with Mom today. And it was really, really bad. I told her about us. And don't say it, I know it was dumb. I guess I just wanted to open up a little. Try to make things right with her in an honest way before going out on my own. Mom said she'd help pay my college tuition, so I thought that meant maybe she wanted to make things better too before I was gone for good. But when I told her about the letters, but when I told her about the letters about me wanting to visit you, Trevor, now she says she'll cut me off and just throw me out right away if I do that, and I know she means it. I know I've messed everything up, I hope you'll forgive me, but I just can't come and see you. Not until I'm done with college. Please, please understand. I hope this all somehow makes sense to you. I've explained it the best I can. I'm sorry. Mercy. My best, however, was a lie. My mom wasn't going to pay for my college, although it was true that I might be allowed to hang around at home if I stayed all serious about it. You see, I'd actually turned things around in 11th grade. I decided that the only person who was going to make my life right was me, and I'd found that, with a bit of effort and more positive outlook, it wasn't actually that difficult. By 12th grade, I was in the running for a hardship scholarship and had qualified to enroll at the local community college. Part-time work at the student deli would supplement my loans and Pell grants. I was an honor student. I'd even made a few friends. The truth was that I didn't need Trevor anymore. Oh, and I didn't cry while writing that letter either. I did write it by the creek bank, though, just like I said. I was honest about that much. Trevor didn't waste much time in answering. June 8, 2015. Dear Mercy, Your mother is a damn dirty bitch, and I hope she gets what's coming to her one day. It ain't right to treat such a sweetheart like you that way. It ain't right to make you a liar. Your father always kept his promises, you know. Always. I believe you will, too. I can wait a few more years. I mean, it's not your fault. Hell, I'm not going anywhere, but in the meantime, would you send me a few more pictures? Brings me so much joy to see how you've flourished in these past couple of years. Keep them on my wall look at them every morning when I wake up and every night before I go to bed. You look so much like your father. You got his eyes. If I ever get out of here, maybe you and I can sit by the water and look at the crawfish together. Would you like that? <laughs> I would. The only thing that keeps me sane in this godforsaken place is knowing you're out there thinking about me. I need you, Mercy. I need you as much as you need me. Remember that, all right? I don't know what I'd do without you. Your friend, Trevor. I sat on my bed and stared at the letter. By the time I realized what was happening, it was almost too late. I ran out of my bedroom, clutching the letter in a sweaty ball of my clenched right hand, and found I could not let go until I was leaning safely over the open toilet. I don't think I've ever thrown up so violently in my life. If I had, prior to that moment, still felt that Trevor Walker was innocent of the crimes he was accused of committing, that letter set me good and straight. For two years, I'd been corresponding with a killer. My father had been friends with a killer. And now, my entire college experience would be tainted with a mistake I'd begun making when I was 16 years old. I would be on the clock again. It would be ticking down the days until Trevor would be expecting me to visit him. To fuel whatever desperate, despairing, perverted fantasy he's used as masturbation fuel in his prison cot at night. He wanted more pictures. He wanted more... Up to date version of what I looked like. He wanted to track my progress toward becoming a woman. I threw up again, noticed my mother at the doorway watching me, saying nothing. I screamed at her to leave me alone. She did, swearing under her breath something about me being a neurotic little bitch. Later it would occur to me that the trait was inherited. You know how you always think of that perfect comeback when the moment's long gone? Anyway. I was making too much of this. He was locked up after all. I spit, flushed the toilet, steadied my breathing. What could he really do? The days of me writing letters to Trevor Walker were fucking finished. But Trevor, it turned out, was not finished with me. September 15th, 2015 Dear Mercy Haven't heard from you in a while Fucking mail clerk must have lost your letter (laughs) Do you hate when that happens? Or maybe my letter's the one that got lost Maybe you didn't get my last reply And you're writing for me If so, I'm sorry I wouldn't leave you waiting like that I'd never do that to you I could never be that cruel I know you wouldn't be that cruel either I'm all you've got. You're all I've got. Can't wait to hear from you again, sweetheart. Your friend, Trevor. I wasn't too surprised to find this particular letter in the mailbox. Actually, if I was surprised by anything, it was that he took three months to send it. I could see that he suspected the truth. It was all in the way he used the word cruel. He knew what I was doing. Deep down, he knew it, even if he was in denial about it. And he was trying in that slimy way of his to guilt me into writing back. Not gonna happen, Trevor, I thought, sliding this letter into my desk drawer at home. I stared at the pile. I should throw them all away. But I didn't. Nor did I take them to the police and file a restraining order. The thought of my correspondence with Trevor becoming public was unbearable. The news would have a field day with it. I'd be like those crazy women who wrote letters to Manson or Bundy, wanting to marry them. That wasn't going to be me. I was finally getting my shit together. It was in my first week of college, and Mom didn't even talk about throwing me out anymore. Maybe actually seeing me try to make something out of myself had something to do with it. Perhaps she was contemplating the empty nest and putting it off as long as she could. I don't know. We didn't always get along, but somehow, now that either one of us could legally separate herself from the other at a moment's notice, we'd found a way to respect each other's boundaries. And I was reluctant to leave. Most of the reasons were financial, but there was this other reason too. She could know about Trevor. Sooner or later, his letters would stop coming, and until they did, I had no choice but to stay. Two months later, he wrote me this. November 20th, 2015. Dear Mercy, You're not ignoring me, are you? I'm starting to think you've forgotten about me, about our bond, but There's no way. We've got too much in common. We're friends. Friends don't leave friends waiting for this long. It's getting cold here. The leaves outside have turned red and brown. I wonder what it must look like for you. I only get to see the same trees over and over again, year after year. I know them by heart. The ones that turn yellow, those that go brown, the crimson ones. They're my favorite. Red is such a soothing color. It's the color of life. It's the color of death. It's beautiful. How have you been? How's college life? Is that why you haven't answered my mail? Hadn't occurred to me that maybe you moved away to attend class. Maybe your skank of a mother found my letters and threw them out. Burned them, maybe. Wouldn't put it past her. She won't stop us, though. I'll just keep writing and writing until one of my letters gets through to you. I won't abandon you. We're connected. Your friend, Trevor. A message on my phone from one of my co-workers at the deli. Linda. Tickets for the Hamjackers Festival next week. So excited. You're coming. On me. Can't cry, Poor. I ran my hand through my hair, then gripped it in a fist. It was a two-day festival, up where she lived in Fremont, 20 miles away. She'd expected me to spend the night. I'd miss the mail for a day. I texted her back. Can't. Sorry. I'll explain tomorrow. I'd think of something by then. I held up Trevor's letter, brushing away my tears. Stop it. I whispered as though he could hear me. Please stop it. And that one wasn't the last either. Far from it. For the next couple of weeks, I heard from him practically every other day. I told myself that this was his final frenzy, that this must all end. End soon. The words on the page kept whispering to me, taunting me, painting my vision red, the color of life and death. We're connected, he said, over and over again. And soon it would be our special day. Trevor was conscientious enough to remember it. December 23rd, 2015. Dear Mercy, do you know what today is? It's our anniversary. The anniversary of the first letter you sent me. It's faded now. I've looked at it so many times. Handled it so much, the ink is smeared and faded. But I still have your picture. I'm very careful with your picture. Don't let anything bad happen to it. But back to the topic at hand. our anniversary. I haven't heard from you in months, but I know you're thinking of me today. I just know it. I can feel you in my bones. It's electric. The bonds that bind us together. You feel it too, right? Our special connection. Tell me you're thinking of me. Happy New Year. Hope to hear from you soon. Trevor. I put out my cigarette. I was tempted to burn myself with it. It wouldn't have been the first time. No. No. I said to myself, you're done with this shit, all of it. You haven't done stupid shit like that since you were a kid. But then I hadn't smoked cigarettes in more than a year either. And here I was, smoking. I hoped Mom wouldn't smell it. That was the last thing I needed. This is it, I thought, and repeated it to myself several times with my eyes shut tight. When I don't answer him on our anniversary, he'll get it. He'll take the point. This is it. This is it. For two months, I dared to hope that it was. February 27th, 2016 Dear Mercy, Have I done something to offend you, sweetheart? Why would you treat me this way? By now, I'm sure at least one of my letters has reached you. I've sent dozens, maybe more, whore of a mom could have caught them all, so why aren't you answering? I miss you. Your friend, Trevor. Into the drawer the letter went. Out came the textbooks. On came the computer. I breathed a sigh of relief as the machine booted up. Finally, he gets it. It was the best thing that could have happened, better even than never hearing from him again. This time for once he acknowledged that I had deliberately cut him off. It took him long enough. As I commenced hacking my way through pages and pages of research on evolving theory on abnormal psychology, I felt an unexpected twinge of guilt. Trevor Walker was a criminal, a killer. But it had originally been me, not him, who had reached out for a friend. I hadn't even had the guts to tell him I was done. This could have been over long ago, and through it all, he cared enough about me to keep our letters secret. If he had told anyone I knew, then sooner or later everyone would have found out. I felt bad for him. But not bad enough to write back. I figured he had one more letter left in him. Tops. But I was wrong. He had two. March 19th, 2016. Dear Mercy, in all the time we've been corresponding, you never once asked me what happened that night. I'm sure you must want to know. Can't blame you. I understand. Well, sweetheart, I think you deserve to know the true story. I owe you that much. It was 1986, and I was taking a stroll after dark. As I walked by the woods, I saw something strange. Something I still can't properly describe to this day. In the darkness, I saw something even darker. Something that seemed to absorb even the dimmest of light, a kind of shadow in the shadows. I could only make out its presence from the absence of things around it. This strange moving shadow shifted toward me as though liquid and solid all at once. I was frozen in fear. Couldn't move, couldn't run, couldn't scream. The shadow slithered into me and suddenly I felt a rush of adrenaline. My body started moving on its own. You know, after all these years, I've always maintained my innocence. And this is why. I wasn't in control that night. I was just a puppet. That thing, that shadow, it pulled me by unseen strings, forced me to do those heinous things. I couldn't stop myself. There was no way to resist him. He made me steal that truck, made me throw those women in the back, made me force myself on them, and made me watch as my hands squeezed the life out of them. I had to watch. Oh God, I had to watch as the light faded from their eyes and felt their bodies turn cold. I had to throw them into the ditch and hunt for the next. But after the third woman, I managed to restrain him. I sat on the hood of that truck and waited for the police to find and arrest me. That was my choice. What I did to those women wasn't. Now that you know the truth, will you respond to me? I miss you. Your friend. Trevor. This, I said aloud, looking at the letter over again for a third time, is out of control. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this would be the moment when a normal person would say to herself, Hey, you know what? Your pin pal is a fucking lunatic who blames his psychosis on demon possession and believes he just used you as his confessor. A normal person and adults would have understood that there was information in that letter that the police might want, and you'd be right to think that, even if. All of the other letters leading up to this one could have been filed in a drawer labeled my own personal bullshit. I could not do that with this one. Not with a clean conscience. If I didn't turn that letter in, I might even be guilty of withholding or something. But Trevor Walker was still in jail. He'd been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and in this state that actually means something. He was surrounded by brick and bars and razor wire and shotguns. If he tried anything, there wasn't a cop anywhere on earth that would hesitate. They'd blow his fucking brains out. And I was in too deep. I'd collected over 50 letters from this monster and done nothing with him. I'd be hounded everywhere I went. I'd have to move, change my identity, hit the reset button on my life yet again. I had friends. I was normal. Things weren't even that bad with mom anymore, so go ahead and say it. I won't argue. I was an idiot. I let the sleeping dog lie. It wasn't long, of course, before the sleeping dog woke up. July 2nd, 2016. Dear Mercy, I gave you a chance, Mercy. I gave you all the time in the world to reply to me. Why didn't you reply to me? You afraid of me? Don't you believe my story? Have you lost faith in me? In us? What they say in the news ain't right, you know. I grew up normal. Normal boy. In a normal, God-fearing household in the outskirts of Montana, they tell my story the way they want to tell my story. Make things up to make me sound like some kind of bloodthirsty animal, capable of nothing but inflicting pain. They never understood me. They changed my story to fit their agendas, to come up with a fake little explanation as to why I was the way I was. Because the lie made more sense than the truth I told. Made more sense than knowing that demons are out there. That the devil is real. That I was just a puppet. They said I tortured my pets as a kid. What a fucking crock. I never hurt a damn animal in my life. Said I was a loner. Not true. I had plenty of friends. Not that any of them would admit to that now. But you would. You know how good of a friend I can be, Mercy. They made me out to be everything I wasn't. They spun their web of lies, made me out to be a monster. Joke's on them though. I ain't no monster. I'm a savior. I'm rotting in this jail cell by choice. It's by my will and my will alone that this creature doesn't get back out into the world. I make sure that I stay in this cell right here where it can't escape Don't you see? I let myself get caught on purpose I wanted to protect the world, not from me, but from it I keep the world safe, I keep you safe But it wants out I'm not sure I can hold it back anymore, you see, you and I our strings have become intertwined. We're its puppets, entangled by fate. It wants to play with you, and I don't think I can fend it off any longer. I've protected you this long, but it wants out now, Mercy. It wants out. It wants you. I've read and reread our letters over and over again. You were very careful to leave your addresses out of our correspondences. Or maybe that was the jail. I don't know. All I know is that your letters always came in blank envelopes. But even though I received many blank envelopes, I always knew which were yours. I could smell yours, Mercy. I smell like you. Sweet. Like lavender. I sniffed them over and over until the scent dried out and was replaced by the stench of my jail cell. I think I looked forward to that the most. Funny how much you underestimate scent until you wind up somewhere where everything smells the same. But yeah, you were careful, or you tried to be. But you, or they, forgot one major detail. All the little things you told me over the years that helped me track you down. That time you told me about the creek. The way you described your town, the terrain. (laughs) Aren't you a sweetheart for giving me the name of your high school so I could track you down? Yeah. We know exactly where you live. See you soon, sweetheart. That was it. His last letter. He must have ridden it during the day before mail call or whatever they call it on the inside because that was also the night that he broke out. He'd been in a maximum security, naturally. A thousand brick and mortar layers of you're fucked separating him from the rest of society. But he got out anyway. Alone. No tunnels, no bodies, nothing. By the time the letter arrived, i had already been here for two days, along with Mom. She's still trying to process all this, how I could have kept it as a secret from her for so long. It's no secret that she doesn't think I'm all that clever, no more than you do, and I won't judge you for that. I've done what you've asked me to do. I've spent hours typing all this shit out. It's everything I can remember about my letters to Trevor and his letters to me. I hope it does some good. One of the hardest things for me to get my head around just now as I sit at this computer at the clerk's office in the police station is the realization that Trevor Walker was not my father's friend. The man in the picture with dad was not the Trevor Walker I just saw on television. They're nothing alike. I suppose I should not be too surprised. Turns out the man in the photograph is some guy named Pete Duggar, and he'd been busted with my dad after convenience to a robbery. I now realize that when my father had written, Getting to Know Wonderful People Like Trevor Walker, he was being sarcastic. I mean, if they had ever been so wonderful together, why would Trevor have killed him in the cafeteria that day? I suppose I should be grateful. I'm surrounded by more than half the cops in town, and most of the other half are looking out for him. I'm as safe as can be. But Trevor's out there looking too. Looking for me. I'm certain he was truthful about that much. And that's not even the worst thing. That's not why I'm scared. I know my mother and I will remain in protective custody for a good long time, or until you catch him, and I hope you do. No, the thing that bothers me is the possibility that everything Trevor Walker said about his original crimes was actually the truth. I mean, impossible as that is, it sure would explain the jailbreak, and no one else seems to be able to do that people are so willing to believe in God without evidence based only on faith, then how hard is it to imagine that the devil or his agents walk among us as well? If they do, you won't be able to save me. No one will. He'll probably kill my mother as well. And it'll be my fault. Because I didn't help Trevor keep the devil at bay. Hey, everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories if you did be sure to leave a like and subscribe if you're new with the bell so you don't miss any new videos I upload every Monday Wednesday and Friday at exactly midnight as soon as it switches over to Monday Wednesday and Friday there will be a new video on this channel and you're not gonna want to miss it so be sure to subscribe with the bell and leave a like because YouTube really seems to like that also leave me a comment down below and I have a quick question I had a thought of trying to narrate the entirety of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the original text, as it was written and published originally. I never actually read the whole book, and I think it would be a lot of fun to just try something out, kind of classic, kind of old, kind of gothic horror, that whole situation. So my question is, one, would you be interested in that, of course? And two, are there any older gothic horror novels you would like me to read, maybe something Bram Stoker-ish or H.G. Wells-ish, let me know in the comments section below, and I will hopefully hear from you soon. Hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, and as always, stay safe out there.